0: Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we speak to authors and reviewers of fiction and nonfiction books of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the literature book review editor at Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. If you like what you hear, please review us or drop me a line at andrewrhall at gmail.com. Today I'm joined by the author DJ Butler, and Matt Westwood, who wrote a review of some of Dave's books in the fall 2020 issue of Dialogue. DJ Dave Butler is a novelist living in Utah. His training is in law, and he worked as a securities lawyer before taking up writing fiction. He's a lover of language and languages, and a guitarist. He's married to a powerful and clever novelist, Emily Butler, the author of Freya and Zeus, and another. she has another novel coming out uh, this year, I believe.
1: Uh, yes, it's coming out in December, and holy cow, I've just blanked on the title. It's about a crow. I don't know. And I,
0: I have not read them yet, but I have some. I know some very strong fans of her work. And they said, oh, Dave's great, but why don't you interview Emily? So we're going to have to get her in uh, soon. Uh, well, t- together they have three devious children. Uh, Dave writes adventure fiction for all ages. Among many books are the middle grade adventure series, The Extraordinary Journeys of Clockwork Charlie, which starts with The Kidnapped Plot, the alternative history steampunk novel, City of the Saints, about a steam-powered kingdom of Deseret, set in 1859, the Witchy War series, including the Witchy Trilogy and a new Serpent Daughter Trilogy, The Cunning Man, co-written with Aaron Michael Ritchie, a historical fantasy novel set in 1930s Helper, Utah, and most recently, a science fiction adventure novel, In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. So we may not get to all of these books today, but I, I definitely want to talk about most of these books that we can. Also joining us is Matataias Singh Goldberg Westwood. Uh, Matataias was born in the shadow of the Wasatch Mountains and grew up near where the Olentangi meets the Scioto River. I believe that's Ohio. Is that right, mm-hmm. Matatataias? Yeah. Okay.
2: That's the land now called Ohio.
0: <laughs> he finds other people's mistakes for a living and forgives them as a religious practice. When off the clock, Matataias has been known to collect and speak about art and literature. He likes stories, whether new or old, and trees, whether short or tall. He hopes someday to make sense of something. Matthias is also a member of the, uh, is on the board of the Association for Mormon Letters, where he frequently has served as a judge for the AML Awards, AML Awards, and he has his own podcast, Matthias Reads the World. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, I very commonly inspire that reaction in people, by the way. Oh, Dave was good, but you should have got Emily. Uh, okay. She and I both blurbed Stephen Peck's novel, Gilda Trillum. We both we sent blurbs. Hers appeared on the book, Mine Did Not. No, no, mm-hmm. it was stabbed in a dark alley and never seen again. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> well, Dave, tell us your background.
1: Where, where did you grow up? Bobo. My dad uh, was getting his doctorate out uh, in Chicago. So my earliest memories are living in the you know, brick tenements uh, south side of Chicago. Uh, lived there until I was five and then in Ithaca, New York for four years. But then at the age of nine, moved to Utah. So, uh, so I've lived something, I'd have to do the math, but something like half my life here now. I moved back to Provo about six or so years ago.
0: So is your family long, deep in the Mormon tradition, or how how far does that go?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but you know how genealogy is, right? Like, you're, at every level, you 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 bifurcate. Uh, so I have uh, different kinds of strands. Uh, the the oldest strand with the church is actually the Butler name. So uh, they, if you meet someone in uh, on the Wasatch Front whose name is Butler, a question you can ask them is, "Are you a Butlerville Butler?" Uh, It turns out I am a butlerville butler. Uh, And what that means is as follows. Uh, Sam Butler in the 1850s uh, owned a uh, paper mill up uh, kind of in the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon, uh, where Butler Middle School uh, or Butler Elementary is now on the historic Butler Hill. Uh, And uh, Sam ultimately fought with Brigham Young and moved to California. Uh, But his sons, who were polygamists, stayed here. Uh, and, uh, they, they outnumbered, there were five of them and they outnumbered the McGee's five to four on the town council. So when it came time to name the little town, it was named Butler and not McGee. Uh, but I'm actually descended both from Butler's and from McGee's, uh, through, through that side. Uh, and then th- that's and then mostly uh, mostly though it's sort of 20th century arrivals from uh, Serbia or East Germany um, or Scandinavia.
0: Mm-hmm. All right.
1: Well, so
0: how did you get the writing book?
1: Oh man, I always thought I was going to be a writer. It's the other stuff that was uh, a, a compromise <laughs> with the world. Uh, so uh, when I was uh, eight. So my dad, uh, he's a professor of economics, recently retired. And, and he, starting when I was a kid, I mean, it's, it's, I guess as far as I can remember, when he would go to, to conferences, he'd come back with a, a gift for everybody. And when I was eight, the gift he brought back for me was the 25th, anna, 25th anniversary Silver Jubilee edition of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit with the Daryl K. Sweet covers all bound paperback into into a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was being homeschooled at the time, and so I just didn't leave my bed for a week. Uh, and I read them all the way through and I almost let the house on fire. I fell asleep with a, with a the bed lamp on and the hinge of the lamp softened in the night and the head of the lamp came down on my pillow. So I woke up and there was a hole burned all the way through the pillowcase uh-huh. to the pillow, uh, by the lamp. Um, so, and I, I wanted to be, um, not just a writer, but an epic fantasy writer from, from that moment on. And I was, I was pretty convinced I was going to do that. Uh, And then uh, basically right up until uh, I was in college. And then I decided I wanted to get married and specifically to Emily. And she didn't really want to be poor. And that seemed like it was reasonable to, to not force that on her. So I didn't know what to do and uh, made a very common punt and went to law school instead. So, uh, but then as soon as I could in 2010, got back to, uh, seriously trying to spend 11 years being a full-time lawyer, being a lawyer full-time. And then, uh, 2010 got back to seriously trying to do what I always had wanted to do.
0: And was City of the Saints, is that your, was that your first published novel or what
1: what was first? That's my first, yes, novel. That's my first published novel. Okay. Um, I wrote that while I had my first agent. Uh, Kind of thinking, man, this guy's probably not going to be able to take this book in any case. This is sort of a weird audience. Uh, And then he dumped me anyway. So I just went ahead and self-published the book um, in, what, 2012, I think.
0: Now, so I think this is a podcast for LDS uh, listeners for the most part. um, And your work really just hits a sweet spot for me. In epic fantasy and steampunk and these these weird elements that you bring in, uh, and these LDS elements. Now you're not I, I'm not saying that you're an LDS author. I know you, do, you have a wide variety of things that you write about. but the fact that you often do include these things is, is very much a sweet point for me, and I think for Matt Mattias as well. Um, so the, your first published novel was about was a steampunk novel about uh, you know historical yeah. Utah state of Deseret. Yeah. why did you want to do that and, and tell us a little bit about that novel.
1: So the, the initial seed was, there's a real world book called the city of the saints by Richard Francis Burton Mm -hmm. was, uh, who was a man of many talents. Um, uh, he discovered the sources of the Nile. He got medals for inventing fencing maneuvers. Uh, he translated scandalous Eastern erotic texts that his widow burned after his death. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and he, and in 1859, he went to Salt Lake City and met Brigham Young and wrote a book about it.
2: Was that before or after he snuck into Mecca?
1: So that was, uh, after. Yeah, that's his, that's his great. I can't believe I left that off his list of accomplishments. Yeah. He did the pilgrimage, uh, to Mecca, which is no big deal. If you, if you convert to Islam, which he did not. Uh, he did have himself circumcised in case anyone on the trail saw him, uh, relieving himself, uh, in, in his, you know, his thirties. Uh, so he was a tough guy. Uh, and he, and he went in disguise as an Afghan doctor, I think, or a Persian doctor, uh, figuring that the Egyptians would, would attribute his slight funny accent to the fact that he was Persian or Afghan or whatever he was pretending to be rather than detect him as a, you know, uh, a, a, a Brit. Um, so, so the city of the saints is a terrific book. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, uh, had recently read it and I thought, you know, this really should be a steampunk adventure. And, and really, so the, the thing, the, here's the reason I like to write about Mormons. Okay. Is, uh, is we're awesome. We're so interesting. <laughs> we're, we're so weird. Um, and, 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 and steampunk in particular, we're, we're, we're really the great steampunk people. Uh, and, uh, you know, the steam, steampunk is a, is a, is a reimagining of science fiction, uh, such as Jules Verne might've written it. So it's, it's rooted in the 19th century. That's, that's when we appear. It is great. It's, it's, and the 19th century was, it was an era of great travel literature. So you have, uh, Jules Verne, all of whose books are about travel. They're all in a single series called Les Voyages Extraordinaire, The Extraordinary Journeys. Right, uh, and and it's you know the age of Burton, and it's the age of Twain's roughing it, uh, and and uh, and so, uh, and we're and we're great travel people, right? And 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 steampunk is a literature of reimagining social conventions, uh, and and there there again, that's us. We're we're the great steampunk people, and uh, I, I don't know how we lasted until two thousand twelve before somebody wrote a Mormon steampunk novel. Um.
2: But I'm pretty sure that was the first. There is uh, some Lee Allred historical stuff that's semi steampunk hmm. in pilots earlier, but it's not necessarily full steampunk genre. It's yeah, and they were short short stories, not novels. Yeah, rather than straight steampunk.
1: Yeah. So, so the test. So to, to further test my hypothesis I went to Immortal Works a couple of years ago a publisher its headquarters here in Salt Lake and said listen I'm pretty sure there's this is a real this is a real thing I think if we say that we're going to publish an anthology of Mormon steampunk we'll get enough submissions to fill a book easily and so they agreed to it and we got enough submissions to fill three books yeah. uh, and they recently published a fourth uh, so so uh, so yeah um it, city of the saints is an is a is a reimagining of burton's voyage as if it were uh a, 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 an adventure uh with ray guns and flying machines uh and kung fu uh, uh rather than the sort of adventure it really was where he met danites and talked about how not to get killed on the road to carson city and met brigham young you know uh and that kind of stuff history
0: it you, you, uh, seems to play into all your books. You, you, you seem to have a real love of history and then playing with it. History and humor together seems to be the keys of the Butler works.
1: I, I think that's really, actually, that's really good. Um, the, um, so I think, I think it's Grail Marcus who said about Bob Dylan that you can't understand him unless you realize that he is constantly joking. Uh, and, and I think that that is, to a very large degree, true of me, too. Even when I'm talking about really serious things, which sometimes I do, um, and uh, and and yeah, so 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 my brand, right? There's this idea that you ought to be able to reduce uh, the brand of anything. To three words. There's a, there's a story I think from the 80s. Uh, and Disney's trying to figure out what their brand is because they started Touchstone Pictures and they're sort of losing their way. And they go hire consultants to 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 tell them what Disney should already know. What's our brand? And the consultants, you know, go and they do interviews and they they take their 50 million dollar check and they say, Here's your brand. It's magical family fun. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? Magical family fun. If it's not that, it's uh, you shouldn't do it. Right. And that anything that is magical family fun, someone should look at it and say, is this Disney? Man, it feels like a Disney uh, film. Right. So I try to think about like, what's my brand? And there's not a really good word for, for the thing that you just hit on. Because what I like to write is things that are really close to the, the bones of Earth. Right. Mm. So that they take a real Earth uh, history or culture or text and play very closely with it. Um, that is, that is, that is uh, almost everything I write does that to some to some degree or another. And I don't know what I don't have a word for it, but, but historical is close. That's part of it.
2: Yeah, and it, it's because uh, it's not necessarily alternate history either. Right, you're not saying like here's a specific turning point where we imagine things being different.
1: Right. If, if Washington sank in the Delaware rather than getting those Hessians, how would history have turned out different? That's not the kind of book. That's
2: not the kind of book you're writing. Yeah. You're writing kind of, you know, how about if, if everything is just a little bit sideways and how does that help us understand the world we live in?
1: That's exactly right. It's like a fun house mirror. One yeah. house mirror held up to the real world in some way.
2: So the, the term, this may help you for branding, uh, Dave, in in writing about your uh, work for dialogue, this is a plug for my review of the Witchy War books. For anyone interested in it, uh, you can presumably read it in dialogue. It's coming issue in November, Woo. and yeah, they, you know they sent me a proof copy and everything, so uh, I haven't you know seen it in in dialogue yet, but uh, I trust that it will be there. Mm. Um, but the the word that I use for your fiction is kaleidoscopic
1: oh that's interesting
2: right dj butler is a is a writer of kaleidoscopic fantasy it's not just epic fantasy it's kaleidoscopic fantasy where you take everything that's in the real world and kind of shake it up and see what new patterns and refractions you get from that kaleidoscope lens
1: yeah yeah that's really good that's really good i like that
0: well, we're gonna we want to talk about the Witchy Eye uh, Witchy War series. So maybe start. What's what was the historical background? What was the ideas that went into
1: into writing this epic fantasy? Um, at first, I thought I might write something. So I was reading. Uh, as I'm finishing reading some writing something, I'm sort of thinking, what do I do next? And so I forget what I've been writing before, uh, but whatever it was, I was, I was asking myself, it was a time when I was asking myself the question, what, what should I write next? And I was reading to my kids, the Brothers Grimm uh, stories in a pretty uh, unexpurgated version, you know, where like all the dark bloody stuff happens. And, uh, and I said, uh, I really like this. I I really want to, um, I love the setting. Uh, it's not the dark and bloody stuff that I love. It's, I love this setting of the Brothers Grimm where you have like a Lord mayor and an emperor and a bishop in the same tale and a knight, uh, but the knight has a pistol, uh, and like, this is, what is this setting? Um, and, uh, and, and while I was doing that, I actually read a history of the 30 years war. And I, I so I, this is, I, I was shockingly late, uh, right? Shockingly old when I realized, Oh, this, the setting is early modern Germany, right? This is not a, it's actually not imaginary. This is a real place. It's early modern Germany. And, and, you know, you do have princes elector and the archbishop who rules the city and right. This is, um, and it's a, it's sort of the froggy when a Courtin kind of times you can write the sword and a pistol. Um, so, uh, I, I first thought I would write, uh, I should write something in early modern Germany. What a cool setting. Um, but, at the time I spoke zero German, now I speak very bad German. at the time I spoke zero. and I and uh, it's a really tall order. Um, but but, I came across a book called Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher, which is a which is a work of American uh, history or historical anthropology. Um, and the basic uh, uh, idea is this. We talk about the, the sort of core or initial European immigration to North America being being English. And then the English came. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the English came in waves. And the waves were very distinctive from each other. They came mm-hmm. from different parts of England. They brought different vocabulary with them and different names and different kinds of Christianity and different clothing patterns uh, and different ideas about liberty and how do you marry and what does marriage mean and you know what what kind of when when is violence appropriate they were four distinct cultures Mm -hmm. um and uh so this is a 900 page book and each of these four cultures and it's it's massachusetts bay puritans and it's the chesapeake uh cavaliers Mm -hmm. and it's the uh quakers of the delaware valley and it's the the north uh, he calls them the North, British, uh, the North British borderers, but the Scotch-Irish is to be a more common term uh, here, right? Um, and and uh, they each get 200 pages of really detailed treatment. And I was reading this book and thinking, man, this is I, – I wish I'm, – I'm a, I'm a tabletop role-playing guy. And I think, man, I wish gaming books were this good, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah. I read the charts, seeing the different people flowing from southwest England to, well, there was the people who went to the south, right? And then yeah. and then the Puritans from southeast going up to, to Massachusetts. I, that was yeah. That's the thing I always remember from that book,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then like pictures of different styles of cabins and drawings of people with, you know, wearing their dresses and nameless. And I said, wow, I wish game books were this cool. They're always so yeah. anemic. And, and then I thought, wait a minute, game books, I'm looking for a setting for a novel. This is the setting for my novel. I shouldn't yeah. be writing early modern Germany, which is I mean, I am a quarter German, but so what, right? Like, I'm 100% American. This is what I should be writing, um, and uh, and and so and so I did. So this 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 story is fairly uh, classic, kind of fairy tale uh, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, primal, simple. Um, but the complexity is that uh, is that America is huge and very complex and epic in scope in all directions, uh, and so it's, it becomes a very big book.
0: It does, yeah. all the different cultures that are brought it, I'm sorry, all the different cultures that, that come into it. Um, and it just as the series goes on, there are more and more, we get hints, hints of these various little cultures and these kingdoms, and, and then eventually we do meet them, and oh, it's yeah, really one of my favorite books ever.
2: I love this series so much. And, I think this uh, summary actually undersells the books. Even, you know, with this kind of impressive, you're, you're smashing together, you're, you're saying, what I did is I smashed together 17th century Germany and 17th century English colonization in North America and saw what would come of it. Um, but there's so much more than just that happening in the world building of these books.
1: Yeah. Um, and so here's another way to think about this. Okay. Um, it, go back to Tolkien, mm-hmm. right? What, what's Tolkien doing? Um, Tolkien's writing a kind of a mythology. Um, and it's, a, it's definitely a mythology of England, but it's really specifically a mythology of Tolkien's England, right? And, 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 and so, in fact, um, I read Tom Shippey's book about Tolkien, uh, I don't know, years ago. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and Shippey in some ways is uniquely positioned to understand Tolkien because he succeeded him in the same academic chair at Oxford, the, whatever it is, chair of old English studies. Right. Uh, and so most of the book, there's this lot, lots of great insights into kind of what Tolkien is doing. Uh, but it reaches this part where Shippey kind of throws his hands up and says, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. because Tolkien writes a letter to a Jesuit friend of his and he says, this book is, this book is uh, is simply too Catholic. No one is going to like my book. It is far too Catholic. And Chippy says, "I don't understand what he's talking about." Right, and, and moves on. Um, well, of course, Tolkien knew what he was talking about, uh, right? And he said that for a reason. Uh, and in fact, it is it is um, it, it's commonplace to say about Tolkien, "Oh, he took these names of dwarfs from the Elder Edda." Yeah, okay, um, it's 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 less. Commonplace to say uh this is a deeply christian book that's about the journey from the fall equinox to to the redemption at easter uh that frodo wakes up in the houses of the healing in gondor and he's talking to gandalf and gandalf says uh the men of gondor will forever after remember march the 25th for this was the day sauron fell um Uh, No comment, right? But, but March 25th in the, in the Catholic medieval liturgical calendar was thought to be the day of the crucifixion, which is to say for Tolkien, right? The day that, uh, the day that, uh, Frodo cannot resolve the sins of the world by himself, right? Having come to the cross, cannot do it by himself, uh, and so Gollum takes the sin of the world and is destroyed upon this cosmic mountain of creation and destruction, thus resolving the sin of the world, right? Is the same day that Christ is crucified on, on, on Calvary.
2: Right. And, so March the 25th is the Annunciation, right? It's the day that Mary accepts the message of Gabriel. So it's both, right? Oh. And that also for deeply marian devoted Tolkien is very important, right?
1: So this gives us like a whole other layers of the of the of the Lord of the Rings, right? And and, and really deep, interesting ones. So what is the
0: what is the other layers of Witchy War series?
1: Yeah, well, so there are many. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say this: that 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 one of the larger conflicts going on. Is um, that there is a loss. So there are there are kind of two species of humanity. And I don't use I don't use the word species and I don't use the word humanity either. I, I'm very careful not to use certain words. I search to make sure America and human and a few other words don't appear in the text. Mm. Um, but there are two kinds of humans. And uh, in a way, but yeah, two especially. Yeah. There are, that's true. There are more than two. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, and they are all the children of Adam, but some are the children of Eve and some are the children of Adam's first wife who is known by various uh, honorific euphemisms, uh, including wisdom. Uh, so they're called there, these, these other humans are called the firstborn or the children of wisdom. Uh, and they have suffered a, a loss, a severance with uh from wisdom from their goddess uh and there is uh uh in in the generation in which you pick up the story is the generation after uh some failed attempts were made to to sever uh or to restore that loss and to and to, to again make full contact with uh, uh with the community's goddess uh, and it turns out that 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 is a, that, that, that a, a full restoration is an essential part uh, of um, of the protagonist's survival really in book three and of the, the continued survival of the community so um, there's there's a, there are theological themes that are very mormon. But they're not just Mormon. This is the point. They're Dave Mormon. Uh, they're, they're, they're issues that I think a lot about uh, and, and, uh, and th- that trouble me uh, or interest me.
2: And uh, yeah, I, one of the other ways I've described these books to people is they're, um, they're a cosmological crisis series masquerading as a political crisis series. Right? So the books have this whole plot that surrounds the political uh, conflict in your version of North America, which the main political unit in this world is the Empire of the New World east of the Mississippi. Um, it's east of the Mississippi because the Mississippi Valley is ruled by a separate uh, king... Uh, known as the Heron King, who may or may not be a fairy tale, um, and so that you know that's kind of the the western border, but 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 i you know a lot of the plot line of the books centers around okay who's who's going to end up being Emperor of the New World, um. But ultimately, the theological and cosmological conflict is is I think more significant to the books than the political conflict. Although they're you know it's working on both levels and very interesting on both levels. Um, but ultimately, to to get the answer to the political crisis, they need to sort of solve these multi-generational theological questions about okay who even are we and what are we doing here and who is in charge in the heavens not just who's in charge politically in this empire
1: yes yeah and and what is an appropriate vision of eternal life yep uh
2: yeah yep yep because uh yeah. When it comes to living forever, there are some very different approaches, uh, in these books, including the necromantic, uh, undead option to living forever.
1: Well, that's right. There's a, there's a, so there are, um, so I do have some very lowbrow pop culture jokes. There are, there are Elvis and, uh, incredible Hulk and, uh, and, uh, Dukes of Hazard jokes, um, but there are also some fairly sort of subtle points in here, uh, including I make an an, an Egyptological argument, which n- no Journal of Egyptology is ever going to publish me. But I thought you know I'll put it in a novel, and maybe someone someday will look at it and go, "Hey, that might be right." Um, so, so, so in in so we're talking about hieroglyphic here, okay? In in, in classical Egyptian, there are two words for forever. Mm. Uh, jet and nehech are how we, we vocalize those. We're just making up the vowels. We don't know for sure what the vowels were, right? But so you say jet er and it means, it used to be translated as forever and ever, but, but, but now it uh, tends to get translated uh, differently because, because we now think those are two different ideas forever. One is um, jet is enduringly. Jet is things that never change. They are the same forever. Uh, and nekh is things that that change, but they always come back.
2: Mm.
1: So it's enduringly and 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 repeatedly is uh, is is a, is a, a more con, a, a more kind of conventional modern translation. Um, so so the the Egyptological argument I made in basically a one throwaway paragraph in this epic fantasy novel, book three of a series, is that that's astral imagery. That's, that's imagery from the Northern hemisphere. Egypt is, Egypt is a North hemisphere country, not by much, but it is somewhat, which means in the Egyptian night sky, there is a peer, a portion of the sky that is always the same. Just like for us, if we go outside, you will see the big dipper every single night. It is always there. And there is a portion of the sky that comes and goes and comes back again and, and will keep coming back again forever. So there's a part of the sky that's enduring and a part of the sky that's repeating. Now this is a little bit of a discord, an excursion, but a, to warn you what kinds of books I write. Uh, and B to say that has actually to do with the different visions of immortality. Uh, it, is, yeah. it is principally about, or here's another way I've, I've described that. Um, I th- uh, what is fantasy literature? I think fantasy literature at its heart properly is the what if literature of the human spirit. I think uh, I think fantasy literature, if it, if it isn't talking about things that are that are archetypal, that are that are Jungian, that are that are that are spiritual, um, it's not really fantasy. It's just an adventure story with elves.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that uh, that gets some of the things that are happening with the world of these books and with the worlds of as many of your books as I've read so far, and I have not read all of your books. Um but I think is certainly true in the, you know, this world setting you have in the cunning Man, for example. Um, that the the spiritual aspects of reality are sort of central to what you're trying to explore. Um, but then all of these other things, There's sort of nothing in your books that is uh, coincidental or, you know, unnecessary. Um, So kind of the one of the fairly common approaches to fantasy world building currently is you have like a like a game dynamic and you have a pretty tight like rule set for your magic system. That's, uh, you know, that's what will decide a lot of the plot and character Stuff is, you know, how does the magic system work and how will characters find out about it and use it and kind of do combat with each other? Um, and then everything else is window dressing, right? The clothes that people wear, the languages, the religions, the cultures is just like, we need some some background to this uh, RPG, right? To this role-playing game. Yep. Um and like, yeah, well, even like the characters, right? They're like emotional stuff and that stuff is is really in a decent amount of current epic fantasy, kind of secondary, like you said, it's adventure story with elves or adventure story with vampires or adventure story with whatever random monsters and uh, period genre elements we decided to put in the background. But all of that is basically window dressing that's extraneous to the actual story, right? The, it could have been... We could have done this as a Regency, we could have done this as a medieval story, and it would have been the same story.
1: Because fundamentally, we've set up a little systematic device, and we're just trying to tease out its logical implications. If we take these seven colors and their combinations, or these 12 metals, or whatever, right?
2: I see what you did there. Um, (laughs) I rebel. And I respect that. I respect that as a method for writing books. Sure. They're entertaining. Sells a lot of books, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and it works, right? It's, you can kind of puzzle it out, and it's a fun puzzle as a reader. And you can have lots of interesting, entertaining window dressing with it. But in your books, the clothes that people wear, right, the music that they sing, the folk tales that they tell, the alcohol that they drink, right? The the graffiti that's scrawled on the walls, right? All of that plays into and is part of this whole complexity, right? And it all has significance, right? There's uh, there's a term actually in like theological studies of scriptural texts called omnisignificance, significance right? The idea that a text, that every single word of a text is there for a reason and is doing interesting things. And there are not a lot of novels that I have read that I think approach something that feels like literary omnisignificance. significance But I think your books are pretty close, right? Where where you really are bringing in all of these aspects of the world, but not in a way where it's just everything is serving the plot, right? Where the plot and that there is this story that's happening, but the purpose of this story is not just to be an interesting story or an entertaining story. The purpose of the story is to make you think about the world in certain ways, both the fictional world and the real world. And sort of all of the pieces of this development go towards that work of kind of helping you think through the fictional world and the real world. And there's kind of more to the fictional world than can fit inside your books. Right. That's the sense that I always get into Witchy war books is there there's too much world for it to really stay contained within these novels. Right. There are all these unanswered questions about like, okay, but like, What exactly was the Spanish War? And like, how did that all happen? And how did, and like, you're never going to explain it all in these books. Yeah. Right? Like, what what was the deal with sort of this, the way that the 30 years war works out in this world and things like that, right? Where there's this, you know, uh, firstborn queen who's married to, king who's a son of adam and they get divorced in a fairly explosive way and it throws europe into all sorts of chaos um how does that all play out right how does it all work that's not going that's not this story that's a different story but that story kind of touches this one right it's a side note here but it shows that this is a real complex world that doesn't just fit inside these novels yeah hey well, go
1: ahead. One, thank you. Uh, and, and two, yeah, I, I think, and, and maybe a, um, so I don't want to perform too much telepathy to imagine what other authors might be doing. But I, but I will say this, I, I am not constructing a riddle that I think, oh, here's a riddle, and the readers will solve it by the end. Mm-hmm. The riddles are there. The, yep. They're already there in the world, and and what I want to do, and this is true of the Witcher War in particular, is lead people up to the riddles, and say, look, here's this stuff, right, and here it is dressed up in fantasy clothing, and people are casting spells to deflect bullets, and you know there are there are zombies and and beast-headed men, but here are some real-world, really interesting questions. And then, and I don't have the answer. Right. Yep. Here are some possibilities. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then resolve it with the good plot. People, people enjoy, you know, enjoy the story. Um, but, 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 but you're not going to come to the end of the, the last book and go, aha, now it is all explained. Yeah. Uh, you should come to the end of the last book and go, I have a lot to think about.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I have so much to think about from these books. And they're full of just fun things. Like the the point in the second, there's a point in the first book where you refer to Napoleon's caliphate. Yes. And I'm familiar yeah. with the 18th and 19th centuries. And I know that like referring to a despot or tyrant in Orientalist terms is a fairly common way of just insulting them, right? Yeah. People do with Joseph Smith fairly often, right? They call yeah. him, you know, Muhammad of the Americas as a way of insulting him. Um... But then in book two, you make sure that, no, this is literal. Napoleon went to Egypt, which he does in real life, right? But what doesn't happen in our history that does happen in the Witchy War books is in Egypt, he converts to Islam. Yep. And comes back as an Islamic leader, right, with an Islamic army. And so his expansion within Europe is not, like, it was already terrifying to Europe because he had this terrifying army that totally upended Europe for a decade or two. But in your world, it's a terrifying army that's upending Europe as part of a new holy war. Yep. Not, you know, it's not just liberty, egalite, fraternite they're bringing... It is the word of the prophet.
1: And it's Mamluk commandos being sent to bring back the head of the Abbe de Talleyrand, a rogue Christian leader hiding out on the North American continent.
2: Who's escaped, who's (laughs) escaped, right? Yeah.
1: Um, The Napoleon side. Yeah.
0: Okay, how about <laughs> before we go too far, limp,
1: yeah. Can you can you tell us the uh the act the, the basic story? Can you tell us about Sarah Calhoun. Oh, yeah, like and, an actual pitch. I mean yeah. <laughs> yes, to like sell someone the book. Okay. Yeah. Um so this is a story of Sarah Calhoun. Sarah is uh, 15 years old. Uh when the story opens, she is very smart, uh, she is fiercely loyal, uh, she is a talented hexer, she is also no, also paranoid, xenophobic, and kind of mean. Uh, and she's been, she's funny, but funny. She is. Yeah, she is funny. Uh, she is, uh, she's been brought up as the last daughter of iron Andy Calhoun, who is a one armed war hero. And he's an elector. He's one of the 13 Appalachian electors. So he has a right to, to vote on a few things, including especially who gets to be emperor. And, uh, and uh, the day of the tobacco fair in 1815, as she and the Calhoun family youngins take the family crop down to, to Free Imperial Nashville uh, to, to sell. And um, Imperial Army officers try to kidnap Sarah because it turns out she is not who she thinks she is. This is the fairly, fairly common kind of uh, fairy tale plot, really. Um, she, she has a hidden past. She's the secret daughter of the dead empress. Uh, the dead empress Mad Hannah Penn, who has spent 15 years immured as an insane woman by her uh, brother Thomas, who took the imperial throne from her, and uh, and and uh, a, a man named Curius Eleutharius, who was the who was one of the firstborn, who was the king, uh, uh, who died 15 years ago, uh, mysteriously in the in the, the Mississippi. Uh, uh, who was the king of one of the seven mound builder kingdoms of the Ohio, one of the seven firstborn uh, kingdoms. So he's kind of a, a folk hero, military hero and wizard, but uh, of, a, of a previous generation. So it turns out Sarah, Sarah's their, their child, one of three children who, um, who have a better claim to the pen landholding than the Emperor Thomas does. Uh, and therefore <laughs> his political power, his political power is basically bought um, and uh, and so uh, Thomas has just discovered her existence uh, and wants her and her other two siblings uh, found and killed. So it's a it's a it's a quest story. It's about Sarah's effort to uh, recover her father's uh, stolen throne, uh, her mother's stolen property, find her siblings, and save them. Uh, it's a it's a journey, um, like a lot of epic fantasy is, but in this case, it's not along the banks of the Andin River, but down the Natchez Trace uh, and, and up the Mississippi. Um, and and it's, got, it's got fairy tale elements um, because it turns out that um, Sarah's uh, the manner of her conception is a, is a kind of a fairy tale story. Uh, Kira Saluthaus was riding the western bounds of his kingdom and was murdered by one of his men. Uh, and, uh, with his dying, dying, uh, blood, he anointed three acorns and sent them with his father confessor back to his, his wife. Uh, she in due time ate the acorns and conceived and bore three children. Uh, each of whom is, has, uh, sort of is marked with a kind of a scar or a, or a disfiguration or an unusual facial feature. Um, which is in Sarah's case an eye, and in fact, I never say which eye it is. So the cover artist said, "Which eye is it?" And I said, "Whichever one you prefer." Um, she has an eye that's never opened, as of the beginning of the story. That's that's swollen and infected, um, and uh, and in and in due course, when that does open, there is an acorn inside. This is a spoiler, uh, and 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 it turns out that 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 acorn and that eye are sort of part of her connection to um, to her father and ultimately her mother. So um, that's sort of, that's a, that's a main character centered kind of description of how, what the story is.
0: Okay, <laughs> and these and, are and it, it, great characters. I mean, there's, there's Sarah's, like you say, a funny, interesting, always we find out her background we see her skills. She has a, a cousin who's this kind of knight-errant that's in love with her. Yep.
2: But, uh, and, uh, but, and never, as far as my reading, Actually, her cousin, because it turns out she was adopted. Which right. is best day ever for Calvin
1: Calhoun, except he's yeah. so duty-driven. Yeah, yeah, Cal's one of my favorite. They're all my favorite. They're all my favorite. Uh, and,
0: and Bill. Bill has got to be one, maybe my favorite.
1: Uh, Bill is great. Bad Bill. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Captain Sir William Johnston Lee, uh, a, a, a cavalier, a man of uh, a John's Land, which is North Carolina, uh, a, a, a breeder of horses, uh, and a pistol fighter uh, who is uh, uh, one of the, uh, he's the... He's the captain of the, um, of the Imperial Light Dragoons, the so-called Philadelphia Blues. He's the bodyguard to uh, Hannah Penn and Curious Elitharius in his day. Um, and he, so 15 years before the story starts. Um, and he is one of, one of three people who hides these three children when they are born. Uh, and in, in consequence of which he, he, he ends up fighting a duel uh, with one of the, uh, with the, the, the heir, the older son of the Earl of John's Land and killing him. Uh, and then basically going into exile. So he, he is a knight, but he's a fallen knight who's making a living, uh, in squalid New Orleans as a thug, uh, and as an assassin. Uh, and so, uh, we, we meet him first, basically committing a murder, um, uh, fight, fighting, a duel that he's paid to fight, um, and, uh, and going to prison for it. And, uh, and so when, when Sarah appears, uh, raising, raising her banner, uh, it is to, it is to Bill, uh, a new life, right? Yeah. It's a, a return of the old world.
2: Well, and, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about Bill, he's this super loyal man, but he's like a un- fundamentally non-religious Christian. He doesn't. He's not theologically interested and he's terrible with languages, even though he lives in the m- most multi-ethnic city in the empire and he's terrible with money, even though he's like trying to make a living on his own. He's a, he's a former aristocrat who is in exile from his lands and has no idea how to make a living. Yeah. And so he's just been like barely keeping his head above water for 15 years. Yep. Cause he has no clue how to get by and hasn't figured it. Like he hasn't really figured it out in 15 years. Yep. So. Yeah. And he's, and his
1: his th- it's the weaknesses of a character that really make them interesting. Right. And I, and, and, and he, he has, there's one other piece to build and, and Mattathias has a really very excellent diagnosis. The the other thing, and he actually sets this out, he, he talks about kind of different kinds of, of warriors, you know, mercenary versus a soldier. And, and And when he's when he's talking to Jacob Hope crossing New Orleans at night after he gets off the prison hulks, yeah. um, Bill himself does not see clearly the difference between being loyal to a master and being loyal to a cause or a principle. Uh-huh. Thats sort of where his that's his, his other sort of big blind spot that uh, that risks getting him into trouble. He is very good at having a banner and fighting for it and basically nobly decently doing it. Um, but the ability to transcend a banner and fight for the right reason may or may not be something Bill is able to do,
0: yeah. Yeah, let me ask, let me take another subject here. Um, so dialogue, Mormon podcast. Now, you've had some novels that are, that are specifically about uh, with Mormon settings, this one does not have a Mormon setting at all. But what do you think comes in? And I have both a question for both of you. What do you think are the Mormon
2: elements of this of this series? Would you be alright with me taking a stab at that first Dave? Do it, yeah. So, so I just want to say this is if you are at all interested in Mormon history or theology, and you are going to bother with one epic fantasy series, if epic fantasy is not your bag, if epic fantasy is your bag. Dig into this because it's a fantastic epic fantasy series, but if epic fantasy is not your bag, but you're willing to try because you think Mormon theology and fantasy is interesting, read these books because like they're they're set in eighteen fifteen so even if they were set in our timeline, right there's no there hasn't been a first vision yet right there it, you're not far enough right um, but these books are absolutely and profoundly Mormon. And we get a sense of this pretty early in book one. Um, and I think listeners familiar with LDS theology and history will understand why this is kind of a watershed moment. So early in book one, Calvin Calhoun, right? So they've been at the tobacco fair, as uh, Dave said, they heckle a uh, New England minister there, which is a great moment. And truly something that I feel like would have been up Joseph Smith's alley, um, properly heckling a minister who's kind of a stick in the mud um, with biblical passages that he hasn't, you know, are somewhat insulting to him. And then they come home and Cal gets told by his grandfather, Iron Andy, that he's going to need to set out on a great journey. And the answer to the next question he's going to be asked is yes. And he says, all right, I'm ready for it. And what proceeds to happen, we don't see it because this isn't something you should show fully in a novel. But it's very clear that Cal is inducted as a mason. And he is very, very confused by the ritual he has just gone through. But he is determined to try and be the best mason he can be. Right. And that's kind of our starting point into the Mormon elements of this world. It gets significantly more Mormon from that point. There are characters named Sherem. There's a character named Gazalem. There are seeing stones and divining rods and Lumen new scriptures that are outside of the biblical canon that people argue about. And, you know, mound builder people who kind of split into two warring nations uh, for a variety of reasons, there's lots of very Mormon stuff in these books, um, but that moment kind of clues you up to realizing just what kind of Mormon books these are going to be.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Uh, there's a there's a, a character who shows up in book two named Lumen Walters, <laughs> who's a magician who's 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 he's, he's fundamentally good-hearted, uh-huh. but. He's, he's, we couldn't make a living in an ordinary way and his father wouldn't have him, uh, about the farm dousing for treasure and water and whatever. Uh, he does, he does douse for goal or for treasure for hidden in treasure at one point. Um, and, and so he becomes this kind of thief of esoteric traditions. He's a guy on a quest to get all the initiations he can be, because they give him power. Um,
2: Knowledge is power,
1: and and that's absolutely one of the sort of themes is is that is that knowledge and in particular esoteric knowledge um, uh, are, are power. There's a so is he based on a real? He
2: is, he's a historical figure. There's a Lumen Walter in Palmyra, yep. Who Joseph Smith runs across early,
1: who some people think may have been connected with Joseph in Joseph's early activities when he was doing things that look like a village magician, when he is is, doing treasure digging, money digging kind of activities.
2: And there are reports that other people go to Lumen when they're trying to steal the gold plates from Joseph and ask him for help in figuring out where the plates are hidden, right, and stuff like that. There are disagreements. Some people think he joins the church and gets baptized. Some people think he didn't. Yep. Um, Brigham Young kind of at one point says, yeah, he got baptized, but then... He was a weird magician and swore a lot and went off and did his own thing somewhere else.
1: Yep. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, there, there are lots of, uh, uh, lots of elements. Let me just kind of reconnect with something I said earlier. You know, one of the big ongoing themes is, is the theme of sort of the loss of knowledge and the restoration of it. And so you have, um, you have, uh, um, uh, knowledge about about uh, about ordinances about rituals that are rituals not just of initiation and information but are rituals of gaining power by accessing uh the the realm of the gods um which have been hidden in tarot decks uh for for example
2: I'm uh benjamin franklin God, benjamin franklin so awesome anyway yeah. so
1: the lightning bishop. Uh, so yeah. yeah, Um, and, and, um, so uh, without, without like belaboring too much sort of comparisons with our day, right? That there's, uh, Cahokia has disconnected from its goddess, which crippled it. The, the rebellion that disconnected it is one that looks a lot like what scholars sometimes call the Deuteronomists
0: Mm
1: who, who are reconstruction. We don't, Right, they're, they're, they're a, a hypothetical uh, movement in, late in the history of the kingdom of Judah, um, but uh, but in the story, there are people who, uh, as unification between the the firstborn who have been there longer and the uh, Europeans, uh, humans, the, the children of Eve who have arrived more recently, as unification is becoming more imminent, some of them are s- sort of embarrassed about, you know, we have this we have this goddess uh, who's manifests as a, as a serpent as an, as a tree, and this is um, you know, we, we should look more like them. Uh, and as a kind of a fundamentalist Christian movement that uh, that breaks the connection with, with the goddess. And so one of the kind of questions um and again, I don't think this is a question that I'm sure I have the answer to. But one of the questions that, that Sarah faces is, um, well, a, she has to decide who do I believe? Do, do I think that this this goddess really was a bloodthirsty demon who was subdued by my ancestors? Or is or is this goddess an ancient um, and powerful and true divinity? which is a source of life and power to me and my people. If I can restore the connection, that's sort of question number one. And then question two is how do I restore the connection? Right. And, 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 and I think what I think I'd like to suggest in the books is that no amount of, is that however much we have clues hidden in plain sight. And I think most of these things are hidden in plain sight. And that's sort of some of the point of the tarot deck. I think at the end of the day, we have to, we have to take action, uh, is 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 Sarah's conclusion, right? And and so and so there's a there's a stalled there's a stalled restoration in in Sarah's day, right? And Sarah to survive and to win as she conceives winning has to complete the restoration um and and pay the cost of it.
2: Yeah. So she, there's she's very much a Joseph Smith figure in that regard um and uh yeah yeah well i i want to
0: go on to so i want to go on to the cunning man uh then this is a three volume series witchy eye witchy winter and witchy kingdom and a four a a a second series a second trilogy is going to come out start to come out next year
1: is that right uh next week actually September, uh, November 2nd. Oh, no, it's Election Day, November 3rd, right? Is that what? Oh, oh. Day? Yes. On the day of election, I have a book coming out that will not get dwarfed or anything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and, uh, it's, I, it's interesting with these books because you wrote the plot line for these books significantly before current events. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> but book three does include an impeach- impeachment crisis. Yep, and there, there are all sorts. You know there there are refugees. Yep, sort of fleeing from <laughs> various natural and unnatural disasters.
1: Yep, um, yep. I run the risk of feeling like it was written to be current, which it was not, but it, it sort not. of accidentally. <laughs>
2: No, it's very you know 18th and 19th
1: century. Yeah,
0: but
1: yeah. What what do you want to give a preview of the new series? Well, so okay, here's the thing: George R. R. Martin and Patrick Rothfuss, if you know those names, um, have really stabbed me in the back. Um, <laughs> and, and in fact, there's a whole host of writers that they have really stabbed in the back. And and the way they did this was by getting people excited about epic fantasy, and then stalling. So both those guys are going on eight years now since they put the last book out. Now, why does this matter? Well, because since 2017, I have gone to Comic Cons, you know, 20 times a year, and stood at a on a concrete floor at a folding table to sell books. And I and I give people people come up and say, "Oh, what this book is? The cover is great. What is this book?" And I give them a pitch like what I told you. Oh, this is about Sarah Calhoun. She's 15 years old and she's smart and blah blah blah, right? Um, and they go, "Oh, sounds great." Is the series complete? And I say. No. And they say, okay, when it's done, I'll buy something. And then they walk away. That's happened to me a thousand times. (laughs) Okay. Um, And it's because Pat Rothfuss and George Martin. And uh, so, um, look, this is a six book series and it's called The Witchy War. But what I tried to do with book three is to bring some of the major plots to a, to enough resolution that if you got there, you'd say like, okay, some of the things, some of the very specific things that Sarah sent it out to do in the beginning of book one are accomplished. Right. Clearly not every plot thread is over, but you know, Sarah is on the throne. She's on the throne in a way her father never was. Um, The, you know, the, her kingdom is freed of the, of the, you know, imperial uh, entanglements that were holding it down. Right. She, she's in, in touch with the goddess. Um, and so I'm calling that the first trilogy. Book four picks up a month later, uh, and and it will have a, a titling convention. That the book should be called "Serpent Daughter," "Serpent Mother," "Serpent Son," and mm-hmm. "Serpent so Son" should bring the whole thing to a uh, to a final conclusion. And and the whole thing really is not so much the struggle with Uncle Thomas. The whole thing really is the struggle with sort of the lesser challenger, Cromwell, and the bigger, more eternal challenge, of uh, Simon's sword. Uh, what what do I do with this, this cosmic foe who is upsetting all of, uh, turning all of creation on his head? Uh, and, and the super Mormon answer uh, has to do with the restoration of ancient covenants, by the way. So, uh, you know, that's where we're going.
0: Great. Thank you. Well, let's let's talk about the Cunning Man uh, series and another one with the, with the second book coming out. Um, can you start give us a, kind of a quick pitch about that novel?
1: Yeah, The Cunning Man is set in 1935. It is about a sugar beet farmer from Lehigh, Utah, who is also a kind of practicing magician. He was raised by his grandma, Hetty, and knows her traditional magical lore. Um, and in 1935, he is a sort of an unofficial assistant to the presiding bishopric.
2: Uh, and, uh, Bishop Rick seems to be of two minds about what kind of assistant he is. Yes. Uh, yeah.
1: So in fact, through book two, we haven't yet seen the presiding bishop. We, we used real men, although we didn't, we've imposed the characters on them we wanted. So we may have slandered them. So, but the presiding bishop, like president cannon, we haven't seen yet. So we have the first counselor. Smith and the second counselor, Wells. And uh, and, and this is actually true. Uh, Cannon and Smith are both, of course, from the Cannon and the Smith family. So they're Salt Lake, you know, uh, royalty. Uh, Wells is not. He's an English immigrant. Mm-hmm. And so we use Smith and Wells uh, like the bad lieutenant and the good sergeant in any cop show, <laughs> right? The bad lieutenant has an in for the has it in for the detective. You 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 got to toe the line, man. It's just too far. I can't tell you from the bad guys. I'm gonna give me your badge, right? That's the bad lieutenant. The good sergeant is always running interference. I won't tell him you were in here. Uh, I didn't give you this file. You got seventy two hours, right? That's the good sergeant. So we so we use Smith and Wells uh, to be to be that. Yeah, Smith is very concerned. Uh, hey, you know, people say you're a wizard. Uh, and Hiram says, this is the opening scene is an interview between Hiram and the first and second counselors of the presiding bishopric. And he's getting his, his chops busted uh, by, by President Smith and he says, you know, hey, we, uh, you know, uh, a sister told us that you you found a thief uh, uh, using uh, using divination, using uh, the clay balls with the names of the suspect in a pan of water, and it dissolved. And uh, and 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 uh, you shouldn't be doing that. He says, "Well, I, I found the thief, you know, and, and I got him to repent, right? Doesn't yeah? Isn't that the, isn't that the right? So Hiram is, Hiram is walking this sort of thin line. He doesn't like the word magic. Doesn't want to call what he does magic. He just knows some traditional lore. He knows how things work." And he wants to help the widows and the poor. He is the, he is the epistle of James Guy, okay? This is religion pure and undefiled. Widows and the fatherless. Um, uh, and Wells supports him, but Smith really, really doesn't. Well, he,
2: uh, he supports him as, you know, go and give money to the poor. Yeah. And you uh, cut it, it out, out with anything that people might mistake for magic because we're done with that. Right. That was the 19th century. We're in the 20th century. Keep your timeline straight. Right. So, um, so he, uh, um, this
1: story opens with him getting his chops busted and he says, well, look, uh, I've got, my truck is loaded with groceries. Do you want me to drive these to the miners and helper or not? And they say, okay, do it, but keep your nose clean. Right. Uh, because there's a mine that shut down because the family is, uh, the, 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 the father is dead and the, the three children are fighting and they can't agree what to do. And so the mine is stopped. And so the miners are without work. And this is 1935. Uh, and so some of the men who can are starting to jump on the train and disappear. And the other people are going hungry. And uh, so Hiram and his adopted Navajo son. Uh, Michael uh, go down to Helper, Utah uh, to deliver groceries and quickly realize there is something more than an ordinary family squabble going on. Uh, And it ends up being a a battle between uh, Hiram and a creature demon fallen angel monster in the bottom of this mine that is causing all the trouble.
2: Yeah. Which, you know, is uh a is very Mormon. Yeah. Of course it's a demon that's at the bottom of a mine. Well,
1: so the cover of the book has Hiram looking into his fedora and there's a glowing light coming out of the hat
2: yeah. because
1: it's a scene. It's a very stylized version of the scene yeah. where Hiram breaks into the house of Ammon Kimball, one of the three, uh, uh, siblings who own the mine. Uh, because he has a suspicion that, that Ammon's seer stone might have belongs to Ammon's father and might have some connection to what's going on. And so he puts the seer stone, Hiram puts the stone in his hat uh, to look at it to see what information he can get and, and does indeed have an encounter with an otherworldly being. So um, more Mormon than this,
2: One does not. (laughs) That's That's interesting. It's in helper, right? And helper in 1935 is not a particularly Mormon Utah town. Correct. So you've got sort of this lone Mormon in a very Mormon landscape, but most of the people he's interacting with are non LDS. Right. They're Greek and German and Scandinavian mine workers who have come here just because of the mine.
0: And a Catholic uh union yeah.
2: organizer. Yeah.
0: Union organizer. That's exactly
2: yeah. right. Yeah. Um yep. So Matthew's what'd you think of this now? Oh, it's fantastic. So it is uh as as you may have, you know, gathered from Dave's description, it is um Paranormal Mormon depression era noir. Um, but I I think it really is it's sort of a inverse Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones is the American who goes all over the world um, fighting Nazis and finding cool religious historical artifacts. And he's the like scholarly man at the academy who interacts with the old, weird, magical, mystical stuff. Um, But he does it, you know, in weird, foreign, backward places where they still have magical, mystical stuff. Um, And then comes back and, you know, puts on his, you know, changes from the leather jacket and the fedora and the bullwhip into his sweater and glasses to go and teach his classes. Um. Hiram Woolley is the weird religious magical mystical stuff. He's got a fedora and a whip. He's got a fedora and a whip. And he uses both of them. And he his job is to kind of put the bad magical mystical stuff to bed using the good magical mystical stuff. So he's doing a sort of... Uh, Indiana Jones type job, but it, he's not doing it in some mystical locale in Egypt or elsewhere. He's doing it at the bottom of a mine in Helper, Utah. Um, and so I, I really think that these books are sort of the inverted Indiana Jones in b- very, very fun ways.
1: That's a that's a fantastic comment. I love that, Manethai's. That's very <laughs> perceptive. And you have another volume of this coming out next year. Yeah, that is, uh, just recently finished the, the proof edit. Uh, that's called the Jupiter knife. And it is, uh, uh, it's, it's again set in Eastern Utah. It's set in, in, uh, Moab, mm-hmm. uh, Hiram and his son are out dousing to, for a well on a, on a small farm in Spanish Valley in the La Salles above Moab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they hear about a ghost. And uh, they resolve to help the ghost. A ghost is a person in distress. And uh, but before they can even begin to resolve that issue, a, a, a murder happens, and so they found themselves uh, swept up in an investigation this murder, which turns out to be a sort of astrological cult. Um, so yes, that one that one comes out. It continues our our streak of having absolutely fabulous covers uh, mm-hmm. uh, for those books, and that comes out in February.
2: And there are also a lot of Hiram Woolley short stories. Oh, yeah. Are those ever going to be collected? Uh,
1: so I'm going to put out a collection of my stories that i been like next year, probably late spring is my guess. So a bunch of the work is already done. There's mm-hmm. basically a cover. It's mostly edited. I probably should write a new story or two uh, is mostly what remains to be done. And that should collect every Hiram Woolley story that has come out to date. And I think there are. Well, that's not true. Uh, Aaron's written one. And Aaron's Aaron's writing another one to go on the Bain website in February. And it won't collect those, but the six or so stories that I wrote should all be in that collection. Mm-hmm.
0: Mountain Meadows. There's a, there's a Mountain Meadows short story. Yeah. There's a one about Chief Wakara from yep. the Wakara War Wakara Wars. Yep. Yeah. I mean, all the great weird things <laughs> in Utah More history.
1: That's what I love to write about. There's, there's, I've, I've got a, the, the next one, I think. I've got to write a story about Balagard Castle. There's a, in, in some of the 19th century journals, there are references to a place with different names, Balagard or Bellagarth, or Balagard Castle, which is this, this place somewhere up on the slopes of Mount Nebo. Which must be accessible from the backside because they said you had to go through some marshy territory to get there, and the front side's all pretty dry. Um, and and it was hard enough to find; you had to have a guide. But it was a it was a spot from which you were supposed to be able to see all the way down to the point of the mountain into Salt Lake Valley. Uh, and so it was used for people who had been involved in mountain meadows, people who were polygamists, uh, when the feds were cracking down on, on polygamists as a lookout place. Cause you could see when anyone was coming down from Salt Lake hours before they could get to you. So you could, you could, you could see them coming and signal, Hey, you know, get off to Ephraim or Cedar city or wherever your hideout is. Um, but it had ruins again, allegedly. Uh, and uh, apparently the local Shoshone said those ruins are not ours. Uh, we have no idea Whose ruins these are? So I have to, I have to write a story about Balagard Castle. I think next. I don't know what the story is going to be yet.
0: Hmm. Now you clearly have uh, you did a lot of reading, research about uh, English folk magic and German folk magic in this. Uh, it looks like you also looked at Michael Quinn's work. Is that right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, um, so so what Hiram does so to a significant extent. Um, uh, yet yeah, indiana jones is actually part of the inspiration um in fact the, the initial discussions for the stories we imagined something more pulpy but also to a very significant extent uh early mormonism the magic worldview um and of course subsequent books which have extended that kind of research including bushman's two books a rough stone rolling and, and the shorter one that preceded it um uh, were sort of the other key piece in the inspiration, right? Um, uh, so, so what Hiram does Hi- every every act of magic we describe Hiram performing, and again he wouldn't say magic, but but I will. Every act of magic we we describe him performing um, is uh, if is is either literally taken out of a real account, historical account, or is very very close. Right, so close that hopefully you can't tell. Um, and uh, so these are these are re- these are real practices, and uh, and they are. Um, so uh, yes, a, a, a piece of it comes out of the German Browker tradition, uh, but the, the the basis, the the biggest piece, is the the English cunning folk, cunning women and cunning men uh, who were English. Uh, artisan class, magical practitioners uh, about whom we have records from as early as we have writing right up until the 1930s in, in England, uh, which very likely means that there are people still doing these things. At least some of them uh, today, 1930 was not that long ago. Um, so yes, Hiram uses uh, dowsing rods and he carries a Cairo amulet and, um, because it's uh, supposed to protect him from harm, and he carries a bloodstone in his pocket, which stanches the flow of blood if you're wounded, uh, and also prevents you from being deceived. Um, but uh, but all of his um, all of his craft, he would say, craft or or his lore or the things he learned from Grandma Hetty or his charms are fundamentally dependent upon his spiritual state. So, in fact, for the for the entire first book, he's fasting. We we see him on day one; he's fasting, and he stays in a state of, of fasting for sort of the three days this is going on. Which, when he drinks like twelve bottles of Coca Cola, really messes him up um, <laughs> late, late, late in the book, um, uh, because that's because his because there's no line between his his craft and his spiritual commitments. The same yeah, when to him. when he does something that he later
0: cites was wrong, when he he, he he I don't know if he ever lies, but he but he like say he breaks into someone's house and then he loses his ability for for a time until yeah. so he can kind of repent of that.
1: He's got to be right with God for his for his craft work. In book two, there's an extended portion of the book where he's distracted by a woman, and he's merely distracted. He doesn't do anything, right? Mm. Uh, but it, but it's enough to really put him off, and he realizes you know, things are not working for me. And this is at a time when he's trying, when his son is sort of s- still not fully believing, but sort of trying to take up the mantle himself. And so they have sort of two not quite functional magicians uh, uh, until they can solve this distraction.
0: It's a great, great book. I, I, I love it so much. So I highly recommend it to everybody. Matt, Matt is there anything else you want to add about, anything about
2: uh, Dave's work? Uh, no, I think, we've we've said a lot of worthwhile things. They're, they're amazing books. Go, go read them.
0: Matthias, you, uh, you have a podcast, right? Can you tell us about that?
2: I do have my own podcast. So that's, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing fancy. It's just something, uh, I started doing it a few months ago as sort of a quarantine hobby in these strange times we're in. Um, And actually the, the basic story on the podcast is, uh, I was actually, so, you know, I, I read a lot, I write a little bit, um, but I was in a car accident just over a year ago that, um, left me, I, I got a pretty serious concussion and then after I would recovered from the concussion, I had a few things just a little bit different and one of them is A migraine condition that set off um, if I spend any significant amount of time reading. Mm -hmm. So my brain basically the like visual processing of uh, turning letters into words and sentences um, in order to read became complicated, which obviously makes writing much harder. um now i've managed at this point to get some writing done using voice dictation software so now i just dictate um and then i work with uh some friends who will you know copy edit for me and kind of read things back to me to make sure i got them right um but i started doing the podcast as a way of sort of getting out creative stuff that i uh would previously have written down or gotten down in some other way, but now it's very easy for me to just, you know, speak it. Um, and so it was just sort of uh, you know, I will podcast about things when I have an idea, but shortly after I started doing it, I uh, had a short story that I wrote a while back that became a finalist in this year's Mormon lit blitz. Oh, congratulations. And I decided, thank you. Thank you. Um, I decided that, it would be fun to do a series of podcast interviews with other Mormon lit blitz finalists. So for the past few months I've been going through and, and doing interviews and it's been, it's been a lot of fun to interview because of the, the Mormon lit blitz is, is very nice because there are a lot of people who uh, compete in the Mormon lit blitz who are very, very talented writers. Um, but the stuff they write is this very weird Mormon fiction often short form. And there's not really much of a market for that, right? Like there it's not mainstream stuff. This is niche, niche writing. And so there are writers who are very good, have very creative stuff, but like, it's not going to get mainstream attention. And so they're very willing to just be on the podcast of some random guy like me. Um, And so it's been very fun to do those interviews um, with some really, in my opinion, absolutely world-class writers, um, but about their Mormon fiction. And so, yeah, we'll see how it goes from here. I don't exactly have a plan for the future of the podcast, but I've got a couple more Lit Blitz interviews to do and then a couple other episodes. I may be starting a series on sort of some speculative thoughts on the Book of Mormon, where I take kind of like a, um, a specific approach to, you know, what, what's kind of going on in the Book of Mormon, what are some possibilities about what's going on sort of beneath the surface, um, stuff that makes sense to the Nephites and Lamanites who are writing this stuff down, but doesn't necessarily make sense to us because we're in a different cultural context but trying to sort of piece together the cultural context um, in sort of like a Hugh Nibley type way or something like that by taking outside uh, sources um, and saying, how can we sort of imagine this cultural context from other potentially parallel sources? Great. So that might be... That's fantastic. You
1: also also have a a piece of fiction uh, being exhibited in the Lee Library coming up.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's a kind of complicated story. Um, And, yeah, I can't take full credit for that piece. But I have a piece um, that I am... I I would describe myself most appropriately as the literary agent for this piece. Um, (laughs) It is a piece... (laughs) That is an excerpt from I I did do some adaptations to make it qualify because it was a fiction that was a requirement for fiction. And it's it's excerpts from the pandemic diary of Jonah Bar-Amitai, who you may be familiar with if you've read the Old Testament. Right. He's the protagonist in the book of Jonah. He's a little bit touchy about the book of Jonah, because as you'll note, the book of Jonah is the one prophetic book in the old Testament that is a third person narrative. Mm. So his submission was, was heavily redacted and edited <laughs> for its inclusion in the old Testament. Um, and so here we get some, just an excerpt from his pandemic diary during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um. So, if anyone is interested in that, uh, yeah, that will be coming up soon uh, through the Harold B. Lee Library.
1: Yeah, they have they have some kind of series of stories. I haven't heard about this. There's a there's an exhibit that will happen should be up in mid December. If you go into the Lee, you're you're not you're not in a position to walk into the Lee Library today. But uh, if you were, uh, the if you walk in the north door. There's an exhibit space behind the circulation desk that just most recently had an exhibit on uh, women's right to vote and the role of Mormon and, and Western women in, in that fight. Um, that space will have a uh, some 26 or 27 uh, literary pieces, including uh, Mattathias as the agent for Jonah Bar-Amitai uh, landed a, uh, it's, mi- it's mixed media. It yeah. is, it's is, uh, uh, it's an Instagram feed of the prophet Jonah during the pandemic.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah, so I handled the, you know, editing to make it, uh, you know, we, we had to move it from real events to based on real events in order to qualify it for inclusion in a fiction contest. <laughs> So I did the editing and alterations in order to have it, you know, meet that fiction uh, bar. So I, yeah, I adapted see. it from from real events. Excellent. So, Thank you. And will will that be, I know there was some discussion over whether those also were going to get posted online um, for people who could not attend the Lee well, Library. Well,
1: what it looks like is that maybe um, all of them, Will be in the physical room up to the first 12 or 1300 words. Now, where there's photos that probably be less than that, it'll probably be the first four or five posts. Yeah. Um, and then in their entirety, they will all be online.
2: Okay. So
1: if you go into the display room, what we'll probably see from Jonah is, uh, you know, a, uh, like a two by three foot with a number of the posts and then a QR code that says to see the whole thing. Yeah your phone here
2: um but you should be able uh, with you know with a url you can you can just read online yeah so it will be available for those of you who are not in provo utah uh, you okay. also jonah has been posting on twitter lately um from what was formerly my twitter account <laughs> um, i still post occasionally but he's sort of taken it over um what's the, what's the there, there's also Interview with Jonah on the blog of the Mormon Arts Collective, The Archive. Uh, they did an uh, interview with him in late July. So, yeah. what's Where Where can people get a hold of you, Matatais? Um, the Twitter handle? Or... Yeah, so the Twitter handle, at uh, Jonah Bar Amitai. And I'll get you the spelling for that so you can include it in show notes. Um, okay. And, yeah, so...
1: Yeah. yeah, who was the evil genius behind this? Uh, this uh, Harold B. Lee library exhibit? It's the guys of the library, actually. So oh, yeah, um, so you may know uh, Trevor, Alfred, yeah. and Christopher McAfee, mm-hmm. um, and uh, th- they have very different roles, um, but uh, they're they're all connected with a sort of uh, archiving Mormon literature now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you're a Utah Mormon writer and you sell books at, for example, our comic con fan X, you know them cause they show up with a little red wagon and they buy all the Mormon written books to go in this archive. Um, so they had, um, I think I can say this. I think this is not me talking out of school. They had planned to do like a, like a now like an October symposium on Mormonism and science fiction. So they had budget, but the, obviously that was not going to happen, you know, by about may or something, they realized there was going to be no symposium, but they still had budget. So they said, so they reached out to me and said, Hey, help us figure out how to do this. Um, how do we go out and get like 30 Mormons to write a short story or something like a short story to put in an exhibit? And so I, I have a very, I'm just i I'm just a, I'm just a, a schmuck assistant, uh, uh, a mechanic, but but those guys really did a very cool thing. Yeah,
2: yeah, and and they've been very flexible with some of the kind of unique circumstances of uh, what I managed to negotiate for them. Wow. <laughs> Dave, where can people uh, get a hold of you?
1: Man, <clears throat> I tell you what. Uh, this is a very turbulent time. I'm sort of, I've been, I, I up until like three weeks ago, I would have said, Oh, Twitter and Facebook. And I am deeply feeling deeply compromised about social media right now. I'm mm-hmm. actually frozen on Twitter. And like, I'm basically pulling out of Facebook because I find yeah. it increasingly venomous and hateful. So, yeah. um, for sure, my website is not going away. And if you go there, you can email me, uh, for unfortunately, uh, there's not very many Mattathias Westwoods hanging around. Uh, there are a lot of Dave Butlers. we um, uh, are saying, unfortunately, there are not a lot of Mattathias Westwoods. Unfortunately, right? Because what a, what a treasure that would be. So uh, so my website is davidjohnbutler.com. John, J-O-H-N. I've never had just my straight name as an email address. Everywhere I've worked, there's been another Dave Butler um, yeah, but davidjohnbutler.com, uh, and and you can email me or, or find social media links or my mailing list or
2: whatever. Another great uh, feature of Dave's website is it has, you can listen to some of the songs from the Witchy War books. That's <laughs> true. Because these are books that include references fairly frequently to the characters either singing or hearing someone else sing. And Dave has recorded some of these songs.
1: Yep. They are real songs in the sense that they have music.
2: Yep. Yeah. And some of them are historical songs written by others. And some of them are inventions of this mad genius here. Um, But yeah, it's amazing. It's a multimedia experience.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thank you so much, both of you, for, for participating today. Well, oh, thank you guys both very much.
2: Yeah, it's been a lot of
0: fun. Good. Now, in the spirit of, of promoting things, I'll mention that um, I have a volume coming out next year, um, A Craving for Beauty, The Lost Works of Maureen Whipple. It is by, edited by myself, Vita Hale, and Lynn Larson through BCC Press. So, Maureen Whipple is the uh, author of The Giant Joshua. Yeah. Uh, great a Mormon novel published in 1941 classic and she had one other book that was published but and a few magazine articles but she not much else and there was always kind of she she had a sequel that was supposed to be coming and it was never published and um so Veda Hale who my co-editor uh was her biographer and she um Lived, she spent a lot of time with her in her last two years, Marine Whipple's last two years, and interviewed her and went through all of her papers and found all of these stories that had never been published. She found five long chapters of the sequel mm. that had never been published. And so they worked together a little bit and, and, and she tried to figure out exactly when all these things were written. And, and then Maureen passed away and Veda went on to write a biography of Maureen. Uh, but the project to publish all of these materials... Uh, stalled out. uh, Levina Fielding Anderson was working with her on that, but Levine got involved in other things, and it just got to be too much, I guess. And but then Levine and I met her a couple years ago, and she said, "Find a way to get this started again." And I I'm in Utah, which makes it hard for me to go to the uh, archives too much. I mean, so I'm, I'm I'm in Japan, which makes it hard for me to go to the archives too much. But I found another co-editor, Lynn Larson, who's a friend of VEDA's and the three of us together got it got it all. Found all the materials that we needed, and. Um, and we have that ready to go uh, early next year. We are also working on doing a uh, republication of the giant Joshua, but we're going to try to do those at the same time. So that's, oh. we're waiting to see what happens with that. By the BCP pressing him? Yes. Oh. That's the idea. Um, and that made me think of, yeah. And so also another project I'm doing is with uh, Robert Raleigh. Raleigh. Uh, we are putting together an anthology of Mormon LDS related okay. shorts fiction to be published in twenty twenty one called The Path and the Gate. I uh, of that one. But I, uh, if, I if
1: you was also hadn't
0: uh uh-huh. we actually I, I uh if if you'd like to submit this for Rory Matthias, uh or either of you by December thirty first of this year we Oh, we okay. have a it's still open. Okay. Mm, it's still open. And then we'll we'll look at the submissions and and get that published early in twenty twenty one, we hope. Yeah. And you can contact me at andrewrhall at gmail.com. This show is a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of eldest tradition, thought, and arts and culture. The collective includes wonderful shows like Face and Hat featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepsen. If if you like the kind of stuff you heard today, that's a great podcast to listen to as well. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. All right, thank you, everybody.
1: Hey, Andrew, thanks.